Hi, I'm Kendall Gilding and welcome to My 30 Minutes. It's been a little while since I sat down for a chat and that's why this episode is going to be a little bit different. This is My 30 Minutes with me and it feels a little indulgent to be doing this but the more I talk to people the more I realize the need to break down some of the barriers and stigma surrounding endometriosis but particularly IVF and infertility and also pregnancy. If you're a guy listening don't just tune out this is actually a great place for you to be because this impacts both sides of a relationship and it's not just the physical health aspects but the emotional and mental health that play a huge role too. My goal is to encourage encourage anyone listening that there is light at the end of the tunnel. If you are on the battlefield right now and you're going through this, or maybe you're experiencing something entirely different, I hope you can take some courage from my story and that it would help you to keep going. I know it's really easy for me to say that because I'm on the other side, but I think it helps to have conversations about these sorts of things just so we can break down the stigma and the barriers that are attached to these ideas. And I definitely think we could be doing a better job of communicating the struggles of these areas. If you've followed my story, you'd know I had a little baby girl named Olive last year. She is pure heaven and was every bit worth the wait, but life sure does throw some curveballs at you along the way. In September 2017, my husband Tim and I sat opposite each other on our bed one night. We decided now was the perfect time to start trying for a baby, so we prayed about it, and I actually remember bawling my eyes out that night. I was super nervous, and there's one thing you should know about me. I am a control freak. I like to be organized and planned. So we'd been pretty calculated in ticking off certain goals in life, achieving a few things that we wanted to do before we got to this point. We'd been married for four and a half years. We'd bought a place to live. We had secured jobs, great families. We loved where we lived, an amazing support system, everything you'd really need. And in a way, starting a family to me felt a little bit like it was going to disrupt everything. I was 26 at the time, Tim was 30, so we were young, we were optimistic, and really, we just thought it would happen and it wouldn't be too much of a challenge. I often think back to that night and laugh because I seriously thought I was going to be pregnant by the morning, and I was so just stressed about it, but how wrong was I because the journey was just getting started. So let's talk about endometriosis. What is it? Well, according to Queensland Health, endometriosis is a condition where tissue that normally lines the uterus grows in other parts of the body. The stray tissue is known as endometrial implants or lesions. My doctor talked about them as lesions all the time. This can affect a bunch of areas, so particularly the ovaries, fallopian tubes, bowel and lining of the pelvis. Stray endometrial tissue continues to act like it would inside the uterus, so it thickens and it breaks down and bleeds with each menstrual cycle. So that's exactly what your uterus lining does during a period. But because the stray tissue can't actually leave the body like normal menstrual blood, it stays inside the pelvis and this can cause inflammation in the surrounding organs. All of this can cause abnormal bleeding, inflammation, scar tissue, severe pain, especially when you have your period, but it can also lead to infertility issues. Now, I had known since I was a teenager that it was possible I'd end up with endometriosis. I'll never forget the day my mum very passively handed me a pamphlet that literally said, you're most likely to have endometriosis if your mum or sister has it. 
My mum and sister had it at the time. Mum had just been diagnosed and my sister had struggled with cysts on her ovaries and endometriosis for a number of years as a teenager. So it was something that I certainly knew was probably part of my future. Women who have a close relative with endometriosis are up to 10 times more likely to develop the condition. So my mum had it, my older sister had it, and in both of their cases, it had been very severe. But I just refused to speak it over me, so I didn't think too much about it. Don't get me wrong, my periods were incredibly painful, but when you have a condition like this, you actually just assume that that's normal and that everyone's periods are that painful and that's just what being a woman is like. So within a few months of trying to fall pregnant when nothing was happening, my very wise husband suggested that we see a GP just to check a few things out. And I'm really thankful for that because often doctors will tell you to try for six to 12 months before going to see someone for help. There is a large part of being relaxed that plays into all of this. But in our case, there were definitely roadblocks that we were going to come across. So I'm thankful we didn't wait ages before we went and saw someone to get some help. So there were no obvious issues and that meant I was referred to a gynecologist after seeing the GP. It took one meeting with her and she concluded that it was highly likely I had endometriosis, obviously due to my family history, and that would need to be removed in order for me to ever fall pregnant. So two weeks later, after fasting and clearing out my system, I arrived at the private hospital for day surgery. Here's what I knew. They would go in via two little incisions in my stomach, one in my belly button and the other just above my pubic bone. If when they went in for a look, they did find endo, they'd have to cut two extra holes towards my hip bone. So they're out towards the sides in order to actually remove the endo. My doctor told me you'll know if you had endometriosis when you wake up because you'll either have two holes in your stomach or you'll have four. And ta-da, when I woke up, I had four holes. (laughs) Anesthetic makes me incredibly sick. And so when I did come to after this surgery, I spent the next few hours throwing up. They give you Panadol and Nurofen and things like that for pain relief after surgery. And I just throw everything up, trying to have a cracker or anything. Um, It all just comes back up. And let me tell you, your abs play a pretty big role (laughs) in that motion of being sick. So it's never a fun time. And I remember just being in so much pain. It meant I actually had to spend the night in hospital and I was devastated because it was meant to be day surgery. We literally lived five minutes around the corner from this private hospital. And we didn't have private health, so we were paying for all of this out of pocket and a stay at the hospital was just like a really, really expensive hotel room. So I foolishly returned to work a day later. I had this surgery on Monday afternoon. I don't think I went in until four o'clock in the afternoon and I had booked to have maybe Tuesday off work as well, but I was heading back to work on Wednesday. And when I saw people who had had this surgery in the past, they could not believe it because they were like, oh, I took a week off after that surgery. My doctor kind of just implied that I would only need a day or two off. So that's all I booked. And with hindsight, that was just stupid. Um, I went back to work on the Wednesday and I actually emceed a major event on the Thursday night. And I'll never forget putting on the cocktail dress. I was so puffy and bloated and sore. And I had to stand on stage for hours to the point where the organizers eventually got me a stool because I think the blood was just running from my face and they thought I was actually going to faint while I was up there. So not the smartest move in my recovery, but it did heal and that was great. And I was on to the next phase of my journey. 
So let's talk about infertility. According to IVF Australia, one in six couples of reproductive age struggle with infertility. So this isn't even taking into account the people who are outside of that age group, which often, you know, people are trying to fall pregnant later and later in life. There are a whole bunch of reasons people can't get pregnant. Endometriosis is one, bad eggs, bad sperm, hormonal issues, the list goes on and on and on. And the hardest part is because we can't see inside people and watch a sperm and an egg interact and do they get together, they're microscopic. So even if we could watch that transaction take place in a body in real time, it would still be hard to see because we'd need a microscope to do all that. So it's really impossible to know exactly what's going on. It does unfortunately become a bit of a case of a process of elimination. So for me, I'd eliminated my endometriosis. But we decided to try a cycle of IUI, which stands for intrauterine insemination. You see, on top of my endo, blood tests revealed I also had polycystic ovarian syndrome. This can manifest in a stack of different ways. You've probably heard of PCOS. Um, It is just one of those common things that people talk about. Um, For some people, it means that they bleed constantly. I've had friends who have bled nonstop for 15 weeks. For others, it could mean that they barely actually get periods. And this condition can impact up to 25% or one in four women of childbearing age. In my case, it actually meant that I barely ever ovulated. So once a month when your eggs are meant to be released, because as a female, you're actually born with all the eggs you're ever going to have in your lifetime, in your body already. Mine actually never really went anywhere each month. So blood tests showed I had a stack of eggs for someone of my age. So it was pretty obvious what was happening for me in terms of my PCOS. So an IUI is, as people love to refer to it, it's a bit like a turkey baster where they inject sperm into the uterus using a catheter. It just means it's a bit more calculated. They're sure of where it's gone. Um, This is all perfectly timed with your cycle and using drugs to prepare just one egg, sometimes maybe a couple, depending on your age. In my case, we always just prefer... got one egg ready to be available for fertilization. So you have to do a cycle of injections for around about 12 days in the lead up. Then another big injection to make you actually ovulate right on time. These injections happen in your stomach back in the day um, when IVF and IUIs were really new. You used to have to go to the hospital every single day to get your injections. Nowadays, they have amazing little EpiPen style injectors. So you can actually do it at home every day. Um, You wind up the dosage and you inject into your stomach. So when you're actually going to ovulate, you've done your 12 days of lead up. The sperm needs to be fresh that morning as well, and they whip it up to make it extra mobile, which basically means the swimmers are all going in the right direction. And this is called sperm motility. You would be surprised of how many of those little guys are actually going nowhere. Sometimes they swim in circles. Sometimes they go backwards. Hopefully they're going forwards, but they're able to literally whip up sperm to increase the motility so that as many of them as possible are heading north. So you've timed everything perfectly, taken a fortnight of drugs by injecting yourself with a needle every morning, your partner produces sperm, it gets put in, and then you have to wait two weeks to see if you're pregnant. In my case, four rounds of this were unsuccessful, and I cannot describe the heartbreak of getting your period each month after all of those drugs and all of that work, and not to mention all of the money, because this is still an expensive process as well. 
So with that not working, my doctor suggested that we just move straight on to IVF because that would at least explain if my eggs and Tim's sperm weren't getting along. Mentally, I found the jump to IVF really stressful. It's really hard to explain and I'm still a little lost for words about it. What is it about having babies that when you can't have them, you are so hard on yourself? As a woman, it's easy to feel like this is just the one thing that human nature says you'll be able to do. So the second that things aren't working, I just remember feeling really useless. It was just so bizarre. And I'm just not the sort of person that normally has a pity party like that. But I was just overwhelmed by this feeling of this is the one thing I should be able to do and I can't. So making the decision to actually progress to IVF was really hard for me. We spoke to our family and friends about it in great detail. And I remember bawling my eyes out um, because in some way it did feel like I hadn't given my body or didn't have enough faith to actually do this normally. But then I'm a big believer in science and I'm so thankful for that, for those advancements. So At the same time, the jump from what we'd been doing to jumping to IVF wasn't that hard. It's actually the same injections into the stomach each day, just a different dose. Instead of trying to get one egg ready to go, you're actually trying to get as many eggs as possible to mature in your ovaries. Then when the timing's right, you go in for day surgery and have them harvested. It's a fairly basic procedure. It's transvaginal, so it's not invasive like the endosurgery. They don't have to cut you open. And it's pretty quick. They actually harvest a lot of eggs in a really short amount of time. So when I woke up, I had a circle on my hand and it had the number 20 written inside. And this was the number of eggs they were able to retrieve. And that is actually pretty phenomenal. I mean, the number's not really what's important. It really is about the quality of the eggs, but still having a lot hopefully increases your chances of having some good eggs in there. And I'll never forget the women either side of me each got less than six eggs. So it can be a grueling process for little reward. And because this is just the start of the journey in trying to actually get something viable with those eggs. So at the same time as I was getting my eggs harvested, Tim had to provide another fresh sperm sample so they could actually try and form embryos on the day. Now you can choose to freeze your eggs on their own, but an embryo is more stable and gives you a better chance at pregnancy. So 15 of my eggs fertilized with sperm. We chose to do two different forms of fertilization. We put 10 of the eggs with sperm on their own and just let them self-fertilize. And we put another 10 and we actually forced fertilize them. The reason we did that was just because in case my eggs had an issue with Tim's sperm, we didn't want to put all 20 together and then find out none of them would fertilize. Um, Incredibly, the ratio was that most of them and the better results came from self-fertilized embryos. And I'll never forget the scientist telling me that, yeah, sperm's a lot better at picking the egg than we are. So science is cool, but the body and the way we function is still probably even better. So 15 of my eggs fertilized with sperm. Of those 15, eight made it to a blastocyst phase, which is a day five old embryo. 
and it needs to develop like that. It keeps multiplying. This is the kind of stuff you will have seen under a microscope just in a news story or something like that. So it keeps multiplying until it gets to day five, which is a blastocyst, and that's the right stage of development to be implanted or to be frozen to used at a later time. So 20 eggs harvested, 15 of them fertilized with sperm, and only eight of those made it to a blastocyst stage. And that's why you can see how devastating it would be for people who get far less eggs because it means the chances are even lower. So a month later, during the natural ovulation stage of my cycle, I went into hospital for day surgery to have the embryo implanted. Before the procedure, a scientist came to see us and he said they'd pulled out an embryo the night before and it actually didn't defrost and do the things they'd hoped. It kind of needs to expand and, you know, they're looking for key markers to see if it's of good quality and able to be transferred. And it hadn't done those, so he said it wasn't viable for the transfer. And I'll never forget the feeling of losing an embryo because although it's microscopic, you literally have to look at it under a microscope, like that was a child and that's our DNA and it's actually a very surreal feeling. And I remember we kind of looked at each other in this room in the hospital and just, yeah, just it just felt devastating. I, I can't explain it. It feels really futuristic. I mean, the whole thing's pretty bizarre, but also incredibly amazing and a huge blessing. Um, yeah, to me, that was a baby. And, and I, yeah, I feel like I grieved that, that embryo all the same. They'd pulled a second embryo from the freezer. And so they'd done it that morning and it had done all the right things. So that was the embryo that would be transferred that day. It was a self-fertilized embryo, so one where the sperm had found the egg on its own, and um, that's kind of all we knew about it. Tim actually got to look at the embryo under the microscope. So in the room, my gynecologist was there who had done all my other surgeries. She was the one that would actually do the transfer, but the scientist was there, and he has the embryo in kind of like a little humidity crib with a microscope over the top. So he's looking at it on a little slide in a Petri dish, and um, yeah, they have to check when they suck it up with a catheter that it's not still on the Petri dish. And so he puts that back under the microscope. Pretty crazy. But Tim got to be there for all of that and have a little bit of a look at it. So after the procedure, I went home and I just watched movies all afternoon with one of my great friends. I wanted to just relax and give my body the best chance to get this embryo to implant because it just gets put inside you and you just have to hope it burrows into your uterus the way an embryo would if it formed naturally in your body. It has to find a safe place to kind of nestle in and decide to grow and make a home. So two weeks later, I had a blood test and I'll never forget the phone call from my gynecologist. It might have actually been a slight, slightly earlier than two weeks. That's the usual time frame, but it might have been like 11 days because it was right before Christmas. And I remember I had to go in early because they'd all be shut over the Christmas period. I'll never forget the phone call from my gynecologist. I was actually sitting in the makeup chair at work. So I was having, or I was having my hair done and I couldn't speak very openly because no one knew what was going on. And my doctor's telling me down the phone that I was pregnant. And I literally just kept saying, you're kidding. No, you're joking. You're kidding. And I couldn't, I just could not believe her. And I just, and I couldn't react because there were too many people around and it's just sensitive information and especially in my work environment. So yeah, I was blown away, but could barely get excited. And yeah, this was five days before Christmas. So literally the best present we could have asked for. 
Um, it is reasonably uncommon to fall pregnant with your first embryo transfer when you do IVF as well. So we were just blown away. So I'm pregnant, but then it was a new phase of drama. Almost instantly, I started bleeding. To spare you all the graphic details, um, this goes on daily for most of the first trimester. We took a holiday to Tassie. Uh, We'd sort of pre-planned this and I'd also done a week of uh, sunrise in Sydney for Channel 7 and I just, yeah, I was starting to feel sick and there was just a lot going on. And following that, we went down to Tasmania and I had this massive bleed and I thought I was miscarrying at about the six-week mark. Our wonderful Airbnb hosts actually drove me to hospital and we spent the whole day there and they just couldn't really give us any answers. And the next day we had to visit an IVF clinic to have a scan and the baby was fine. It was incredible. Two weeks later, the same thing happened at home. So we went to the Royal and... After waiting for hours and finally getting an ultrasound, um, which I was convinced would just show an empty uterus, that there was no baby there, um, she was very secretive during the ultrasound. And I'm just laying there and we'd cried for hours thinking, oh, I just can't believe this is happening. You know, by this stage, it's about the eight week mark. And I've been in the room having this ultrasound for like 10 minutes and she's just not saying anything. And we don't know what we're looking for on the screen. And after a while, she just kind of was like, well, your baby's hanging in there. And I was like, what? And I could not believe it. I was convinced that there was going to be, we'd lost the baby. So to find out it was still in there, we got Maccas on the way home because it was like midnight and we were so chuffed. We just went to bed and got the best sleep and just thought we lived to fight another day. So to all the women who experience bleeding during their pregnancy, be encouraged. Some women actually get their period while being pregnant. Some women experience bleeding the entire time as if their cycle's fairly normal. If you Google bleeding during pregnancy, it will literally say that you are miscarrying every time. I remember Googling because I was just desperate for answers and there's lots of different reasons why this happens. Um, my midwife eventually explained to me that potentially it has to do with IVF and just because your body skips a bit of a step. I won't bore you with the scientific details of that, but potentially it had to do with that and just the way your body processes that you are now pregnant. Um, there's just a sort of buildup of blood in other areas and then eventually it gets too heavy for your body to hold and it passes through. But um, just take Take courage from that, that if you are bleeding while pregnant, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. And yeah, your body's going through a lot and doing a lot of things. And it's just not necessarily true that you're not going to make it. On top of all this, I had drastic morning sickness for my first trimester. So it was just such a fun stage. The Tasmanian holiday was just a total write-off. I was in bed, (laughs) I think like five of the seven days. By the time I hit my second trimester, I was all better. No more bleeding, no more morning sickness, my energy returned, and the best bit was we were finally able to announce we were pregnant. I find it devastating that during those first few months when, one, you're sick, you're so tired. I remember taking naps in the most absurd places and just hoping no one cottoned on to what was happening. Um, it's also at the time you are at the greatest risk of miscarriage because one in four or 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. So while all of this is going on, you can't really talk to anyone or be honest about where you're at. 
And I just think that is absolute madness because I understand why it happens. People are worried that if they lose the baby, then they have to talk to people about that or people are going to come up and ask how the pregnancy is going and they have to explain they're not pregnant. But at the same time, that's really when you need support. So I think we need to find a way to, to do better at that and, and to support each other better. My second trimester was incredible. I had so much energy and was just overjoyed that we could sort of start planning our future life a bit. We traveled to Europe while I was 20 weeks pregnant. So from 20 to 22 weeks, we were over there. We did like four countries, a stack of cities. And it was an amazing time to travel because I had heaps of energy. Like I was able to keep up with everybody and I didn't need these afternoon naps or anything. And it was just a fantastic time. After the travel, when I was back at work, I was razor sharp. I had great focus. I was achieving so much. It was actually a really memorable time for me being pregnant because I was so sharp and focused and full of energy. And I'd do a normal work day and come home and cook dinner in high heels and my work clothes. And I just had this kind of energizer bunny level of um, ability. It was pretty awesome. Having said all that, we were excited, but I never really let my guard down and allowed myself to feel full joy. I didn't talk about it much to friends and not even to my husband, but after everything we'd been through, I was waiting for our baby to arrive before I really celebrated. And that kind of saddens me too. I guess I just wish I could rewind time and and enjoy it a bit more or allow myself to be a bit more optimistic. I was just cautious because I didn't want to be let down by something that really I couldn't control. Olive Joy Morgan was born on the 23rd of August 2019. She was 3.3 kilo or 7 pound 4 for those playing at home. She was 54 centimetres long and arrived after a seven hour labour. We called her Olive because it means peace. It's derived from the biblical story of Noah where he sent out a dove and it returned with a single olive leaf. And to this day, it's a universal peace offering. And everything about Olive has brought so much peace and contentment to our lives. I cannot even begin to explain it. After a journey of, yeah, what felt like struggle to be able to just relish in The peace and joy of a beautiful little girl is pretty remarkable. And anyone out there who's become a parent for the first time knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's it's just the most incredible experience, but she is peace by name and peace by nature. So I want to encourage anyone out there who is struggling with their body, and it may not necessarily be infertility or endometriosis. You might have chronic pain, mental illness, I just really want to encourage you. I want us to start having these conversations and being open and honest with each other. My three tips if you are on this journey and you're finding yourself in a battle with endo or IVF or infertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome, number one, be proactive in seeking help, not just from your friends, but from um, medical experts. It's one thing to hope that things will get better, but we really need to take proper steps to get better. It is one thing to hope you will heal, and I always have faith for anything, but there's also people out there who are trained experts and know how to help you, and there's just no point in suffering in silence. Number two, trust the process. It's not going to happen overnight, so you need to stay the path. 
even though we did four rounds of IUI that was unsuccessful, all of that was part of the process to get to IVF. And if we didn't do IVF, we wouldn't have Olive. That specific embryo that was picked out by that scientist that day is that little girl. And if the sperm and egg found each other 10 seconds earlier or later, because it might have been a different sperm, it would be a different person. So you really need to trust the process. Number three, rejoice in the wins. Don't be like me and wait before you celebrate. Because regardless of what happened with that pregnancy, I was able to fall pregnant. And that's a massive win because it means my body was able to do that. And there's just so much to be thankful for. Well, thanks for spending 30 minutes with me, Kendall Gilding. I'm feeling a little exposed and a little out there, but this is just something I was incredibly passionate about. And the more I'm talking to people, the more I'm finding that this is a journey lots of you are on. And I hope that my story in some small way can encourage you. And I hope we can have more positive faith life-filled conversations like this in the future.